Law of Success Course by Napoleon Hill Dedicated to Andrew Carnegie Who suggested the writing of the course, and to Henry Ford Whose astounding achievements form the foundation for practically all of the 16 lessons of the course, and to Edwin C. Barnes A business associate of Thomas A. Edison whose close personal friendship over a period of more than 15 years served to help the author carry on in the face of a great variety of adversities and much temporary defeat met with in organizing the course. Greater than WHO said it could not be done? And what great victories has he to his credit which qualify him to judge others accurately? Greater than. Greater than Dash Napoleon Hill. A personal statement by the author. Some 30 years ago a young clergyman by the name of Gonzales announced in the newspapers of Chicago that he would preach a sermon the following Sunday morning entitled What I Would Do If I Had a Million Dollars. The announcement caught the eye of Philip D. Armour, the wealthy packing house king, who decided to hear the sermon. In his sermon Dr. Gonzales pictured a great school of technology where young men and young women could be taught how to succeed in life by developing the ability to think in practical rather than in theoretical terms, where they would be taught to learn by doing. If I had a million dollars, said the young preacher, I would start such a school. After the sermon was over Mr. Armour walked down the aisle to the pulpit, introduced himself, and said, Young man, I believe you could do all you said you could, and if you will come down to my office tomorrow morning I will give you the million dollars you need. There is always plenty of capital for those who can create practical plans for using it. That was the beginning of the Armour Institute of Technology, one of the very practical schools of the country. The school was born in the imagination of a young man who never would have been heard of outside of the community in which he preached had it not been for the imagination, plus the capital, of Philip D. Armour. Every great railroad, and every outstanding financial institution and every mammoth business enterprise, and every great invention, began in the imagination of some one person. F. W. Woolworth created the five and ten cent store plan in his imagination before it became a reality and made him a multimillionaire. Thomas A. Edison created the talking machine and the moving picture machine and the incandescent electric light bulb and scores of other useful inventions, in his own imagination, before they became a reality. During the Chicago fire scores of merchants whose stores went up in smoke stood near the smoldering embers of their former places of business, grieving over their loss. Many of them decided to go away into other cities and start over again. In the group was Marshall Field, who saw, in his own imagination, the world's greatest retail store, standing on the selfsame spot where his former store had stood, which was then but a ruined mass of smoking timbers. That store became a reality. Fortunate is the young man or young woman who learns, early in life, to use imagination, and doubly so in this age of greater opportunity. Imagination is a faculty of the mind which can be cultivated, developed, extended and broadened by use. If this were not true, this course on the 15 laws of success never would have been created, because it was first conceived in the author's imagination, from the mere seed of an idea which was sown by a chance remark of the late Andrew Carnegie. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you may be following as an occupation, there is room for you to make yourself more useful, and in that manner more productive, by developing and using your imagination. Success in this world is always a matter of individual effort, yet you will only be deceiving yourself if you believe that you can succeed without. The Cooperation of Other People Success is a matter of individual effort only to the extent that each person must decide, in his or her own mind, what is wanted. This involves the use of imagination. From this point on, achieving success is a matter of skillfully and tactfully inducing others to cooperate. Before you can secure cooperation from others, nay, before you have the right to ask for or expect cooperation from other people, 
you must first show a willingness to cooperate with them. For this reason the eighth lesson of this course, the habit of doing more than paid for, is one which should have your serious and thoughtful attention. The law upon which this lesson is based, would, of itself, practically ensure success to all who practice it in all they do. In the back pages of this introduction you will observe a personal analysis chart in which 10 well-known men have been analyzed for your study and comparison. Observe this chart carefully and note the danger points which mean failure to those who do not observe these signals. Of the 10 men analyzed 8 are known to be successful, while 2 may be considered failures. Study, carefully, the reason why these 2 men failed. Then, study yourself. In the 2 columns which have been left blank for that purpose, Give yourself a rating on each of the 15 laws of success at the beginning of this course, at the end of the course rate yourself again and observe the improvements you have made. The purpose of the law of success course is to enable you to find out how you may become more capable in your chosen field of work. To this end you will be analyzed and all of your qualities classified so you may organize them and make the best possible use of them. You may not like the work in which you are now engaged. There are two ways of getting out of that work. One way is to take but little interest in what you are doing, aiming merely to do enough with which to get by. Very soon you will find a way out, because the demand for your services will cease. The other and better way is by making yourself so useful and efficient in what you are now doing that you will attract the favorable attention of those who have the power to promote you into more responsible work that is more to your liking. It is your privilege to take your choice as to which way you will proceed. Again you are reminded of the importance of Lesson 9 of this course, through the aid of which you may avail yourself of this better way of promoting yourself. Thousands of people walked over the great Calumet copper mine without discovering it. Just one lone man used his imagination, dug down into the earth a few feet, investigated, and discovered the richest copper deposit on earth. You and every other person walk, at one time or another, over your Calumet mine. Discovery is a matter of investigation and use of imagination. This course on the 15 laws of success may lead the way to your Calumet and you may be surprised when you discover that you are standing right over this rich mine, in the work in which you are now engaged. In his lecture on Acres of Diamonds, Russell Conwell tells us that we need not seek opportunity in the distance, that we may find it right where we stand. This is a truth well worth remembering. Napoleon Hill Author of The Law of Success The author's acknowledgement of help rendered him in the writing of this course. This course is the result of careful analysis of the life work of over 100 men and women who have achieved unusual success in their respective callings. The author of the course has been more than 20 years in gathering, classifying, testing and organizing the 15 laws upon which the course is based. In his labor he has received valuable assistance either in person or by studying the life work of the following men. Henry Ford. Thomas A. Edison. Harvey S. Firestone. John D. Rockefeller. Charles M. Schwab, Woodrow Wilson, Darwin P. Kingsley, William Wrigley Jr., A. D. Lusker, E. A. Feline, James J. Hill, Edward Bach, Cyrus H. K. Curtis, George W. Perkins, Henry L. Doherty, George S. Parker, Dr. C. O. Henry, General Rufus A. Ayers, Judge Albert H. Gary, William Howard Taft, Dr. Elmer Gates, John W. Davis, 10. Captain George M. Alexander, to whom the author was formerly an assistant. Hugh Chalmers. Dr. E. W. Strickler Edwin C. Barnes Robert L. Taylor, Fiddling Bob, George Eastman. E. M. Statler Andrew Carnegie John Wanamaker Marshall Field. Samuel Insull. F. W. Woolworth. Judge Daniel T. Wright. One of the authors. Law Instructors, Albert Hubbard. Luther Burbank. 
O. H. Harriman. John Burroughs. E. H. Harriman Charles P. Steinmetz Frank Vanderlip Theodore Roosevelt William H. French. Dr. Alexander Graham Bell, to whom the author owes credit for most of Lesson 1. Of the men named, perhaps Henry Ford and Andrew Carnegie should be acknowledged as having contributed most toward the building of this course, for the reason that it was Andrew Carnegie who first suggested the writing of the course and Henry Ford whose life work supplied much of the material out of which the course was developed. Some of these men are now deceased, but to those who are still living the author wishes to make here grateful acknowledgement of the service they have rendered, without which this course never could have been written. The author has studied the majority of these men at close range, in person. With many of them he enjoys, or did enjoy before their death, the privilege of close personal friendship which enabled him to gather from their philosophy facts that would not have been available under other conditions. The author is grateful for having enjoyed the privilege of enlisting the services of the most powerful men on earth, in the building of the Law of Success course. That privilege has been remuneration enough for the work done, if nothing more were ever received for it. These men have been the backbone and the foundation and the skeleton of American business, finance, industry and statesmanship. The Law of Success course epitomizes the philosophy and the rules of procedure which made each of these men a great power in his chosen field of endeavor. It has been the author's intention to present the course in the plainest and most simple terms available, so it could be mastered by very young men and young women, of the high school age. With the exception of the psychological law referred to in Lesson 1 as the mastermind, the author lays no claim to having created anything basically new in this course. What he has done, however, has been to organize old truths and known laws into practical, usable form, where they may be properly interpreted and applied by the workaday man whose needs call for a philosophy of simplicity. In passing upon the merits of the law of success Judge Albert H. Gary said, two outstanding features connected with the philosophy impress me most. One is the simplicity with which it has been presented, and the other is the fact that its soundness is so obvious to all that it will be immediately accepted. The student of this course is warned against passing judgment upon it before having read the entire 16 lessons. This especially applies to this introduction, in which it has been necessary to include brief reference to subjects of a more or less technical and scientific nature. The reason for this will be obvious after the student has read the entire 16 lessons. The student who takes up this course with an open mind, and sees to it that his or her mind remains open until the last lesson shall have been read, will be richly rewarded with a broader and more accurate view of life as a whole. Contents of this introductory lesson. 1. Power what it is and how to create and use it. 2. Cooperation the psychology of cooperative effort and how to use it constructively. 3. The mastermind how it is created through harmony of purpose and effort between two or more people. 4. Henry Ford, Thomas A. Edison and Harvey S. Firestone the secret of their power and wealth. 5. The big six how they made the law of the mastermind yield them a profit of more than $25 million a year. 6. Imagination how to stimulate it so that it will create practical plans and new ideas. 7. Telepathy how thought passes from one mind to another through the ether. Every brain both a broadcasting and a receiving station for thought. 8. How salesmen and public speakers sense or tune in on the thoughts of their audiences. 9. Vibration described by Dr. Alexander. Graham Bell, inventor of the long distance. Telephone. 10. 10. Air and ether how they carry vibrations. 11. How and why ideas flash into the mind from unknown sources. 12. History of the law of success philosophy, 
covering a period of over 25 years of scientific research and experimentation. 13. Judge Albert H. Gary reads, approves and adopts the law of success course. 1. 14. Andrew Carnegie responsible for beginning of law of success course. 2. 15. Law of success training helps group of salespeople earn $1 million. 3. 16. So-called spiritualism explained. 4. 17. Organized effort the source of all power. 5. 18. How to analyze yourself. 19. How a small fortune was made from an old, worked out, worthless, farm. 20. There's a gold mine in your present occupation if you will follow directions and dig for it. 1. 21. There's plenty of ready capital for development of any practical idea or plan you may create. 2. 22. Some reasons why people fail. 23. Why Henry Ford is the most powerful man on earth, and how others may use the principles which give him his power. 24. Why some people antagonize others without knowing it. 25. The effect of sexual contact is a mind stimulant and health builder. 26. What happens in the religious orgy known as the revival. 27. What we have learned from nature's Bible. 28. Chemistry of the mind, how it will make or destroy you. 29. What is meant by the psychological moment in salesmanship. 30. The mind becomes devitalized how to recharge it. 31. The value and meaning of harmony in all cooperative effort. 32. Of what do Henry Ford's assets consist? The answer. 33. This is the age of mergers and highly organized cooperative effort. 34. Woodrow Wilson had in mind the law of the mastermind in his plan for a League of Nations. 35. Success is a matter of tactful negotiation with other people. 36. Every human being possesses at least two distinct personalities, one destructive and one constructive. 37. Education generally misunderstood to mean instruction or memorizing of rules. It really means development from within, of the human mind, through unfoldment and use. 38. Two methods of gathering knowledge, through personal experience and by assimilating the knowledge gained through experience by others. 39. Personal analysis of Henry Ford, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Woodrow Wilson, Napoleon Bonaparte, Calvin Coolidge, and Jesse James. 40. Authors after the lesson visit. Time is a master worker that heals the wounds of temporary defeat, and equalizes the inequalities and rights the wrongs of the world. There is nothing impossible with time. The Law of Success. Lesson 1. The Mastermind. You can do it if you believe you can. This is a course on the fundamentals of success. Success is very largely a matter of adjusting oneself to the ever-varying and changing environments of life, in a spirit of harmony and poise. Harmony is based upon understanding of the forces constituting one's environment, therefore, this course is in reality a blueprint that may be followed straight to success, because it helps the student to interpret, understand and make the most of these environmental forces of life. Before you begin reading the Law of Success lessons you should know something of the history of the course. You should know exactly what the course promises to those who follow it until they have assimilated the laws and principles upon which it is based. You should know its limitations as well as its possibilities as an aid in your fight for a place in the world. From the viewpoint of entertainment the Law of Success course would be a poor second for most any of the monthly periodicals of the snappy story variety which may be found upon the newsstands of today. The course has been created for the serious-minded person who devotes at least a portion of his or her time to the business of succeeding in life. 
The author of the Law of Success course has not intended to compete with those who write purely for the purpose of entertaining. The author's aim, in preparing this course, has been of a twofold nature, namely, first to help the earnest student find out what are his or her weaknesses, and, secondly to help create a definite plan for bridging those weaknesses. The most successful men and women on earth have had to correct certain weak spots in their personalities before they began to succeed. The most outstanding of these weaknesses which stand between men and women and success are intolerance, cupidity, greed, jealousy, suspicion, revenge, egotism, conceit, the tendency to reap where they have not sown, and the habit of spending more than they earn. All of these common enemies of mankind, and many more not here mentioned, are covered by the law of success course in such a manner that any person of reasonable intelligence may master them with but little effort or inconvenience. You should know, at the very outset, that the law of success course has long since passed through the experimental state, that it already has to its credit a record of achievement that is worthy of serious thought and analysis. You should know, also, that the law of success course has been examined and endorsed by some of the most practical minds of this generation. The law of success course was first used as a lecture, and was delivered by its author in practically every city and in many of the smaller localities, throughout the United States, over a period of more than seven years. Perhaps you were one of the many hundreds of thousands of people who heard this lecture. During these lectures the author had assistants located in the audiences for the purpose of interpreting the reaction of those who heard the lecture, and in this manner he learned exactly what effect it had upon people. As a result of this study and analysis many changes were made. The first big victory was gained for the law of success philosophy when it was used by the author as the basis of a course with which 3,000 men and women were trained as a sales army. The majority of these people were without previous experience, of any sort, in the field of selling. Through this training they were enabled to earn more than $1 million, $1 million, for themselves and paid the author $30,000 for his services, covering a period of approximately six months. The individuals and small groups of salespeople who have found success through the aid of this course are too numerous to be mentioned in this introduction, but the number is large and the benefits they derived from the course were definite. The law of success philosophy was brought to the attention of the late Don Armellet, former publisher of the Canton, Ohio, Daily News, who formed a partnership with the author of the course and was preparing to resign as publisher of the Canton Daily News and take up the business management of the author's affairs when he was assassinated on July 16, 1926. Prior to his death Mr. Mellet had made arrangements with Judge Albert H. Gary, who was then chairman of the board of the United States Steel Corporation, to present the law of success course to every employee of the Steel Corporation, at a total cost of something like $150,000. This plan was halted because of Judge Gary's death, but it proves that the author of the Law of Success has produced an educational plan of an enduring nature. Judge Gary was eminently prepared to judge the value of such a course, and the fact that he analyzed the Law of Success philosophy and was preparing to invest the huge sum of $150,000 in it is proof of the soundness of all that is said in behalf of the course. You will observe, in this general introduction to the course, a few technical terms which may not be plain to you. Do not allow this to bother you. Make no attempt at first reading to understand these terms. They will be plain to you after you read the remainder of the course. This entire introduction is intended only as a background for the other 15 lessons of the course, and you should read it as such. You will not be examined on this introduction, but you should read it many times, as you will get from it at each reading a thought or an idea which you did not get on previous readings. In this introduction you will find a description of a newly discovered law of psychology which is the very foundation stone of all outstanding personal achievements. This law has been referred to by the author as the mastermind, 
meaning a mind that is developed through the harmonious cooperation of two or more people who ally themselves for the purpose of accomplishing any given task. If you are engaged in the business of selling you may profitably experiment with this law of the mastermind in your daily work. It has been found that a group of six or seven salespeople may use the law so effectively that their sales may be increased to unbelievable proportions. Life insurance is supposed to be the hardest thing on earth to sell. This ought not to be true, with an established necessity such as life insurance, but it is. Despite this fact, a small group of men working for the Prudential Life Insurance Company, whose sales are mostly small policies, formed a little friendly group for the purpose of experimenting with the law of the mastermind, with the result that every man in the group wrote more insurance during the first three months of the experiment than he had ever written in an entire year before. What may be accomplished through the aid of this principle, by any small group of intelligent life insurance salesmen who have learned how to apply the law of the mastermind will stagger the imagination of the most highly optimistic and imaginative person. The same may be said of other groups of salespeople who are engaged in selling merchandise and other more tangible forms of service than life insurance. Bear this in mind as you read this introduction to the Law of Success course and it is not unreasonable to expect that this introduction, alone, may give you sufficient understanding of the law to change the entire course of your life. It is the personalities back of a business which determine the measure of success the business will enjoy. Modify those personalities so they are more pleasing and more attractive to the patrons of the business and the business will thrive. In any of the great cities of the United States one may purchase merchandise of similar nature and price in scores of stores, yet you will find there is always one outstanding store which does more business than any of the others, and the reason for this is that back of that store is a man, or men, who has attended to the personalities of those who come in contact with the public. People buy personalities as much as merchandise, and it is a question if they are not influenced more by the personalities with which they come in contact than they are by the merchandise. Life insurance has been reduced to such a scientific basis that the cost of insurance does not vary to any great extent, regardless of the company from which one purchases it, yet out of the hundreds of life insurance companies doing business less than a dozen companies do the bulk of the business of the United States. Why? Personalities. 99 people out of every 100 who purchase life insurance policies do not know what is in their policies and, what seems more startling, do not seem to care. What they really purchase is the pleasing personality of some man or woman who knows the value of cultivating such a personality. Your business in life, or at least the most important part of it, is to achieve success. Success, within the meaning of that term as covered by this course on the 15 laws of success, is the attainment of your definite chief aim without violating the rights of other people. Regardless of what your major aim in life may be, you will attain it with much less difficulty after you learn how to cultivate a pleasing personality and after you have learned the delicate art of allying yourself with others in a given undertaking without friction or envy. One of the greatest problems of life, if not, in fact, the greatest, is that of learning the art of harmonious negotiation with others. This course was created for the purpose of teaching people how to negotiate their way through life with harmony and poise, free from the destructive effects of disagreement and friction which bring millions of people to misery, one and failure every year. With this statement of the purpose of the course you should be able to approach the lessons with the feeling that a complete transformation is about to take place in your personality. You cannot enjoy outstanding success in life without power, and you can never enjoy power without sufficient personality to influence other people to cooperate with you in a spirit of harmony. This course shows you step by step how to develop such a personality. Lesson by lesson, the following is a statement of that which you may expect to receive from the 15 laws of success. 1. A definite chief AIM will teach you how to save the wasted effort which the majority of people expend in trying to find their life work. 
This lesson will show you how to do away forever with aimlessness and fix your heart and hand upon some definite, well-conceived purpose as a life work. 2. Self-confidence will help you master the six basic fears with which every person is cursed the fear of poverty, the fear of ill health, the fear of old age, the fear of criticism, the fear of loss of love of someone and the fear of death. It will teach you the difference between egotism and real self-confidence which is based upon definite, usable knowledge. 3. Three habit of saving will teach you how to distribute your income systematically so that a definite percentage of it will steadily accumulate, thus forming one of the greatest known sources of personal power. No one may succeed in life without saving money. There is no exception to this rule, and no one may escape it. 4. Four initiative and leadership will show you how to become a leader instead of a follower in your chosen field of endeavor. It will develop in you the instinct for leadership which will cause you gradually to gravitate to the top in all undertakings in which you participate. 1. Imagination will stimulate your mind so that you will conceive new ideas and develop new plans which will help you in attaining the object of your definite chief aim. This lesson will teach you how to build new houses out of old stones, so to speak. It will show you how to create new ideas out of old, well-known concepts, and how to put old ideas to new uses. This one lesson, alone, is the equivalent of a very practical course in salesmanship, and it is sure to prove a veritable goldmine of knowledge to the person who is in earnest. 2. Enthusiasm will enable you to saturate all with whom you come in contact with interest in you and in your ideas. Enthusiasm is the foundation of a pleasing personality, and you must have such a personality in order to influence others to cooperate with you. 3. 3. Self-control is the balance will with which you control your enthusiasm and direct it where you wish it to carry you. This lesson will teach you, in a most practical manner, to become the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. 4. 4. The habit of doing more than paid for is one of the most important lessons of the Law of Success course. It will teach you how to take advantage of the Law of Increasing Returns, which will eventually ensure you a return in money far out of proportion to the service you render. No one may become a real leader in any walk of life without practicing the habit of doing more work and better work than that for which he is paid. 1. Pleasing personality is the fulcrum on which you must place the crowbar of your efforts, and when so placed, with intelligence, it will enable you to remove mountains of obstacles. This one lesson, alone, has made scores of master salesmen. It has developed leaders overnight. It will teach you how to transform your personality so that you may adapt yourself to any environment, or to any other personality, in such a manner that you may easily dominate. 2. Accurate thinking is one of the important foundation stones of all enduring success. This lesson teaches you how to separate facts from mere information. It teaches you how to organize known facts into two classes, the important and the unimportant. It teaches you how to determine what is an important fact. It teaches you how to build definite working plans, in the pursuit of any calling, out of facts. 11. Concentration teaches you how to focus your attention upon one subject at a time until you have worked out practical plans for mastering that subject. It will teach you how to ally yourself with others in such a manner that you may have the use of their entire knowledge to back you up in your own plans and purposes. It will give you a practical working knowledge of the forces around you, and show you how to harness and use these forces in furthering your own interests. 1. 12. Cooperation will teach you the value of teamwork in all you do. In this lesson you will be taught how to apply the law of the mastermind described in this introduction and lesson 2 of this course. This lesson will show you how to coordinate your own efforts with those of others, in such a manner that friction, jealousy, strife, envy and cupidity will be eliminated. You will learn how to make use of all that other people have learned about the work in which you are engaged. 2. 13. Profiting by failure will teach you. 
How to make stepping stones out of all of your past and future mistakes and failures. It will teach you the difference between failure and temporary defeat, a difference which is very great and very important. It will teach you how to profit by your own failures and by the failures of other people. 14. Tolerance will teach you how to avoid the disastrous effects of racial and religious prejudices which mean defeat for millions of people who permit themselves to become entangled in foolish argument over these subjects, thereby poisoning their own minds and closing the door to reason and investigation. This lesson is the twin sister of the one on accurate thought, for the reason that no one may become an accurate thinker without practicing tolerance. Intolerance closes the book of knowledge and writes on the cover, Finnis. I have. Learned it all. Intolerance makes enemies of those who should be friends. It destroys opportunity and fills the mind with doubt, mistrust and prejudice. 15. Practicing the golden rule will teach you how to make use of this great universal law of human conduct in such a manner that you may easily get harmonious cooperation from any individual or group of individuals. Lack of understanding of the law upon which the golden rule philosophy is based is one of the major causes of failure of millions of people who remain in misery, poverty and want all their lives. This lesson has nothing whatsoever to do with religion in any form, nor with sectarianism, nor have any of the other lessons of this course on the law of success. When you have mastered these 15 laws and made them your own, as you may do within a period of from 15 to 30 weeks, you will be ready to develop sufficient personal power to ensure the attainment of your definite chief aim. The purpose of these 15 laws is to develop or help you organize all the knowledge you have, and all you acquire in the future, so you may turn this knowledge into power. You should read the Law of Success course with a notebook by your side, for you will observe that ideas will begin to flash into your mind as you read, as to ways and means of using these laws in advancing your own interests. You should also begin teaching these laws to those in whom you are most interested, as it is a well-known fact that the more one tries to teach a subject the more he learns about that subject. A man who has a family of young boys and girls may so indelibly fix these 15 laws of success in their minds that this teaching will change the entire course of their lives. The man with a family should interest his wife in studying this course with him, for reasons which will be plain before you complete reading this introduction. Power is one of the three basic objects of human endeavor. Power is of two classes that which is developed through coordination of natural physical laws, and that which is developed by organizing and classifying knowledge. Power growing out of organized knowledge is the more important because it places in man's possession a tool with which he may transform, redirect and to some extent harness and use the other form of power. The object of this reading course is to mark the route by which the student may safely travel in gathering such facts as he may wish to weave into his fabric of knowledge. There are two major methods of gathering knowledge, namely, by studying, classifying and assimilating facts which have been organized by other people, and through one's own process of gathering, organizing and classifying facts, generally called personal experience. This lesson deals mainly with the ways and means of studying the facts and data gathered and classified by other people. The state of advancement known as civilization is but the measure of knowledge which the race has accumulated. This knowledge is of two classes, mental and physical. Among the useful knowledge organized by man, he has discovered and catalogued the 80-odd physical elements of which all material forms in the universe consist. By study and analysis and accurate measurements man has discovered the bigness of the material side of the universe as represented by planets, suns and stars, some of which are known to be over 10 million times as large as the little earth on which he lives. On the other hand, man has discovered the littleness of the physical forms which constitute the universe by reducing the 80-odd physical elements to molecules, atoms, and, finally, to the smallest particle, the electron. An electron cannot be seen, 
it is but a center of force consisting of a positive or a negative. The electron is the beginning of everything of a physical nature. Molecules, atoms and electrons, to understand both the detail and the perspective of the process through which knowledge is gathered, organized and classified, it seems essential for the student to begin with the smallest and simplest particles of physical matter, because these are the ABCs with which nature has constructed the entire framework of the physical portion of the universe. The molecule consists of atoms, which are said to be little invisible particles of matter revolving continuously with the speed of lightning, on exactly the same principle that the earth revolves around the sun. These little particles of matter known as atoms, which revolve in one continuous circuit, in the molecule, are said to be made up of electrons, the smallest particles of physical matter. As already stated, the electron is nothing but two forms of force. The electron is uniform, of but one class, size and nature, thus in a grain of sand or a drop of water the entire principle upon which the whole universe operates is duplicated. How marvelous! How stupendous! You may gather some slight idea of the magnitude of it all the next time you eat a meal, by remembering that every article of food you eat, the plate on which you eat it, the tableware and the table itself are, in final analysis, but a collection of electrons. In the world of physical matter, whether one is looking at the largest star that floats through the heavens or the smallest grain of sand to be found on earth, the object under observation is but an organized collection of molecules, atoms and electrons revolving around one another at inconceivable speed. Every particle of physical matter is in a continuous state of highly agitated motion. Nothing is ever still, although nearly all physical matter may appear, to the physical eye, to be motionless. There is no solid physical matter. The hardest piece of steel is but an organized mass of revolving molecules, atoms and electrons. Moreover, the electrons in a piece of steel are of the same nature, and move at the same rate of speed as the electrons in gold, silver, brass or pewter. The 80-odd forms of physical matter appear to be different from one another, and they are different. Because they are made up of different combinations of atoms, although the electrons in these atoms are always the same, except that some electrons are positive and some are negative, meaning that some carry a positive charge of electrification while others carry a negative charge. Through the science of chemistry, matter may be broken up into atoms which are, within themselves, unchangeable. The 80-odd elements are created through and by reason of combining and changing of the positions of the atoms. To illustrate the modus operandi of chemistry through which this change of atomic position is wrought, in terms of modern science. Add four electrons, two positive and two negative, to the hydrogen atom, and you have the element lithium. Knock out of the lithium atom, composed of three positive and three negative electrons, one positive and one negative electron, and you have one atom of helium, composed of two positive and two negative electrons. Thus it may be seen that the 80-odd physical elements of the universe differ from one another only in the number of electrons composing their atoms, and the number and arrangement of those atoms in the molecules of each element. As an illustration, an atom of mercury contains 80 positive charges, electrons, in its nucleus, and 80 negative outlying charges, electrons. If the chemist were to expel two of its positive electrons it would instantly become the metal known as platinum. If the chemist could then go a step further and take from it a negative, planetary, electron, the mercury atom would then have lost two positive electrons and one negative, that is, one positive charge on the whole, hence it would retain 79 positive charges in the nucleus and 79 outlying negative electrons, thereby becoming gold. The formula through which this electronic change might be produced has been the object of diligent search by the alchemists all down the ages, and by the modern chemists of today. It is a fact known to every chemist that literally tens of thousands of synthetic substances may be composed out of only four kinds of atoms, viz., hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen and carbon.
differences in the number of electrons in atoms confer upon them qualitative, chemical, differences, though all atoms of any one element are chemically alike. Differences in the number and spatial arrangement of these atoms, in groups of molecules, constitute both physical and chemical differences in substances, i.e. in compounds. Quite different substances are produced by combinations of precisely the same kinds of atoms, but in different proportions. Take from a molecule of certain substances one single atom, and they may be changed from a compound necessary to life and growth into a deadly poison. Phosphorus is an element, and thus contains but one kind of atoms, but some phosphorus is yellow and some is red, varying with the spatial distribution of the atoms in the molecules composing the phosphorus. It may be stated as a literal truth that the atom is the universal particle with which nature builds all material forms, from a grain of sand to the largest star that floats through space. The atom is nature's building block out of which she erects an oak tree or a pine, a rock of sandstone or granite, a mouse or an elephant. Some of the ablest thinkers have reasoned that the earth on which we live, and every material particle on the earth, began with two atoms which attached themselves to each other, and through hundreds of millions of years of flight through space, kept contacting and accumulating other atoms until, step by step, the earth was formed. This, they point out, would account for the various and differing strata of the earth's substances, such as the coal beds, the iron ore deposits, the gold and silver deposits, the copper deposits, etc. They reason that, as the earth whirled through space, it contacted groups of various kinds of nebulae, or atoms, which it promptly appropriated, through the law of magnetic attraction. There is much to be seen, in the Earth's surface composition, to support this theory, although there may be no positive evidence of its soundness. These facts concerning the smallest analyzable particles of matter have been briefly referred to as a starting point from which we shall undertake to ascertain how to develop and apply the law of power. It has been noticed that all matter is in a constant state of vibration or motion, that the molecule is made up of rapidly moving particles called atoms, which, in turn, are made up of rapidly moving particles called electrons. The vibrating fluid of matter, in every particle of matter there is an invisible fluid or force which causes the atoms to circle around one another at an inconceivable rate of speed. This fluid is a form of energy which has never been analyzed. Thus far it has baffled the entire scientific world. By many scientists it is believed to be the same energy as that which we call electricity. Others prefer to call it vibration. It is believed by some investigators that the rate of speed with which this force, call it whatever you will, moves determines to a large extent the nature of the outward visible appearance of the physical objects of the universe. One rate of vibration of this fluid energy causes what is known as sound. The human ear can detect only the sound which is produced through from 32,000 to 38,000 vibrations per second. As the rate of vibrations per second increases above that which we call sound they begin to manifest themselves in the form of heat. Heat begins with about 1,500,000 vibrations per second. Still higher up the scale vibrations begin to register in the form of light. 3 million vibrations per second create violet light. Above this number vibration sheds ultraviolet rays, which are invisible to the naked eye, and other invisible radiations. And, still higher up the scale just how high no one at present seems to know vibrations create the power with which man thinks. It is the belief of the author that the fluid portion of all vibration, out of which grow all known forms of energy, is universal in nature, that the fluid portion of sound is the same as the fluid portion of light, the difference in effect between sound and light being only a difference in rate of vibration, also that the fluid portion of thought is exactly the same as that in sound, heat and light, accepting the number of vibrations per second. Just as there is but one form of physical matter, 
of which the Earth and all the other planets, suns and stars are composed the electron so is there but one form of fluid energy, which causes all matter to remain in a constant state of rapid motion. Air and ether, the vast space between the suns, moons, stars and other planets of the universe is filled with a form of energy known as ether. It is this author's belief that the fluid energy which keeps all particles of matter in motion is the same as the universal fluid known as ether which fills all the space of the universe. Within a certain distance of the Earth's surface, estimated by some to be about 50 miles, there exists what is called air, which is a gaseous substance composed of oxygen and nitrogen. Air is a conductor of sound vibrations, but a non-conductor of light and the higher vibrations, which are carried by the ether. The ether is a conductor of all vibrations from sound to thought. Air is a localized substance which performs, in the main, the service of feeding all animal and plant life with oxygen and nitrogen, without which neither could exist. Nitrogen is one of the chief necessities of plant life and oxygen one of the mainstays of animal life. Near the top of very high mountains the air becomes very light, because it contains but little nitrogen, which is the reason why plant life cannot exist there. On the other hand, the light air found in high altitudes consists largely of oxygen, which is the chief reason why tubercular patients are sent to high altitudes. Even this brief statement concerning molecules, atoms, electrons, air, ether and the like, may be heavy reading to the student, but, as will be seen shortly, this introduction plays an essential part as the foundation of this lesson. Do not become discouraged if the description of this foundation appears to have none of the thrilling effects of a modern tale of fiction. You are seriously engaged in finding out what are your available powers and how to organize and apply these powers. To complete this discovery successfully you must combine determination, persistency and a well-defined desire to gather and organize knowledge. The late Dr. Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the long-distance telephone and one of the accepted authorities on the subject of vibration, is here introduced in support of this author's theories concerning the subject of vibration. Suppose you have the power to make an iron rod vibrate with any desired frequency in a dark room. At first, when vibrating slowly, its movement will be indicated by only one sense, that of touch. As soon as the vibrations increase, a low sound will emanate from it and it will appeal to two senses. At about 32,000 vibrations to the second the sound will be loud and shrill, but at 40,000 vibrations it will be silent and the movements of the rod will not be perceived by touch. Its movements will be perceived by no ordinary human sense. From this point up to about 1,500,000 vibrations per second, we have no sense that can appreciate any effect of the intervening vibrations. After that stage is reached, movement is indicated first by the sense of temperature and then, when the rod becomes red-hot, by the sense of sight. At 3 million it sheds violet light. Above that it sheds ultraviolet rays and other invisible radiations, some of which can be perceived by instruments and employed by us. Now it has occurred to me that there must be a great deal to be learned about the effect of those vibrations in the great gap where the ordinary human senses are unable to hear see or feel the movement. The power to send wireless messages by ether vibrations lies in that gap, but the gap is so great that it seems there must be much more. You must make machines practically to supply new senses, as the wireless instruments do. Can it be said, when you think of that great gap, that there are not many forms of vibrations that may give us results as wonderful as, or even more wonderful than, the wireless waves? It seems to me that in this gap lie the vibrations which we have assumed to be given off by our brains and nerve cells when we think. But then, again, they may be higher up, in the scale beyond the vibrations that produce the ultraviolet rays. Authors note, 
the last sentence suggests the theory held by this author. Do we need a wire to carry these vibrations? Will they not pass through the ether without a wire, just as the wireless waves do? How will they be? Perceived by the recipient? Will he hear a series of signals or will he find that another man's thoughts have entered into his brain? We may indulge in some speculations based on what we know of the wireless waves, which, as I have said, are all we can recognize of a vast series of vibrations which theoretically must exist. If the thought waves are similar to the wireless waves, they must pass from the brain and flow endlessly around the world and the universe. The body and the skull and other solid obstacles would form no obstruction to their passage, as they pass through the ether which surrounds the molecules of every substance, no matter how solid and dense. You ask if there would not be constant interference and confusion if other people's thoughts were flowing through our brains and setting up thoughts in them that did not originate with ourselves? How do you know that other men's thoughts are not interfering with yours now? I have noticed a good many phenomena of mind disturbances that I have never been able to explain. For instance, there is the inspiration or the discouragement that a speaker feels in addressing an audience. I have experienced this many times in my life and have never been able to define exactly the physical causes of it. Many recent scientific discoveries, in my opinion, point to a day not far distant perhaps, when men will read one another's thoughts, when thoughts will be conveyed directly from brain to brain without intervention of speech, writing or any of the present known methods of communication. It is not unreasonable to look forward to a time when we shall see without eyes, hear without ears and talk without tongues. Briefly, the hypothesis that mind can communicate directly with mind rests on the theory that thought or vital force is a form of electrical disturbance, that it can be taken up by induction and transmitted to a distance either through a wire or simply through the all-pervading ether, as in the case of wireless telegraph waves. There are many analogies which suggest that thought is of the nature of an electrical disturbance. A nerve, which is of the same substance as the brain, is an excellent conductor of the electric current. When we first passed an electrical current through the nerves of a dead man we were shocked and amazed to see him sit up and move. The electrified nerves produced contraction of the muscles very much as in life. The nerves appear to act upon the muscles very much as the electric current acts upon an electromagnet. The current magnetizes a bar of iron placed at right angles to it, and the nerves produce, through the intangible current of vital force that flows through them, contraction of the muscular fibers that are arranged at right angles to them. It would be possible to cite many reasons why thought and vital force may be regarded as of the same nature as electricity. The electric current is held to be a wave motion of the ether, the hypothetical substance that fills all space and pervades all substances. We believe that there must be ether because without it the electric current could not pass through a vacuum, or sunlight through space. It is reasonable to believe that only a wave motion of a similar character can produce. The phenomena of thought and vital force we may assume that the brain cells act as a battery and that the current produced flows along the nerves. But does it end there? Does it not pass out of the body in waves which flow around the world unperceived by our senses, just as the wireless waves passed unperceived before Hertz and others discovered their existence? Every mind both a broadcasting and a receiving station, this author has proved, times too numerous to enumerate, to his own satisfaction at least, that every human brain is both a broadcasting and a receiving station for vibrations of thought frequency. If this theory should turn out to be a fact, and methods of reasonable control should be established, imagine the part it would play in the gathering, classifying and organizing of knowledge. The possibility, much less the probability, of such a reality, staggers the mind of man. Greater than no man has a chance to enjoy permanent success until he begins to look in a mirror for the real cause of all his mistakes. Greater than greater than, greater than, 
Greater than dash Napoleon Hill. Greater than if you must slander someone don't speak it but write it, write it in the sand, near the water's edge. Greater than. Greater than dash Napoleon Hill. Greater than don't be afraid of a little opposition. Remember that the kite of success generally rises against the wind of adversity, not with it. Greater than render more service than that for which you are paid and you will soon be paid for more than you render. The law of increasing returns takes care of this.